What It Takes is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, BakerBots. Founders and leaders of clean energy companies around the world turn to BakerBots for legal advice at every stage of their journey, from incorporation to exit. They look to people like Travis Wofford, a partner at the firm, for comprehensive advice on raising capital, protecting their ideas, and navigating the regulatory maze in order to bring innovations to market faster. That's why Baker Botts has been around for 180 years. We're trying to find the innovators and say, look, we've done this before. We know what's coming down the road. Why don't we help you plan for that so that you can attack the market and grow your business and be successful in the way that you really envision for your product and your ideas? BakerBots knows energy, they know technology, and they know the needs of entrepreneurs that are pushing the boundaries of both. To scale your clean energy business faster, reach out to lawyers like Travis. Visit BakerBots.com. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. Global electric vehicle sales doubled from 2020 to 2021, and they're on track to nearly double again this year. All of those new EVs on the road mean more demand for charging stations, in parking lots, highway rest stops, office buildings, and other places we visit on a daily basis. There are 46,000 public EV charging stations and 120,000 charging ports across the United States. They seem simple enough, a plug and some electricity, but maintaining them is more complex than it seems. Differences in manufacturers, network providers, and utilities can mean a wide variation in hardware or software between two different stations. And that complexity can make fixing technical problems a challenge. And that's the exact problem our guest, ChargerHelp co-founder and CEO Camille Terry, is working to solve. We see anywhere between 32% of the current charging stations can be offline at any given time. And that 80% of the issues that they experience are non-electrical. And so what we do is we go on site, we utilize our app in order to troubleshoot the charging stations that are currently being deployed across the United States. That is a wild stat. About 32%, you said, are, are not working, not because of electrical issues, but because of, it sounds like, software issues. Is that right? Yeah. So software, communications, firmware, vandalism, literally everything else but electrical. (laughs) It's incredibly easy to fuel a car with gasoline. There are 150,000 gas stations in the U.S., and if a single pump isn't working, chances are good that the next one over is fine. Today, unfortunately, that's not necessarily the experience for some EV drivers. They may go to a location that maybe it only has one station or all the stations at that location are, are not working. And for somebody that maybe they're at their last mile, right, they have to then try to find the nearest charging station. ChargerHelp's purpose is to give EV drivers the best experience possible. It analyzes operational data about chargers across the U.S. and then sends skilled personnel to fix them when they're down. The goal of ChargerHelp is to ensure that folks have confidence in our infrastructure and that they know that if there is an issue, that there will be a technician or someone down, you know, there to fix that immediately. 
Since the company's founding in 2020, ChargerHelp has raised $2.75 million and racked up a powerful list of customers, including ABB, NLX, and Duke Energy. But the mission isn't just technical, it's also human. ChargerHelp hires local technicians, pays them $30 or more an hour, and works with partner groups to train new talent from underserved communities. Yeah, for us, we what we did first is we looked at what is good business? And so to us, it's like, oh, these aren't nice to have features. This is what makes a good company. I sat down with Camille to hear about ChargerHelp's model to empower underserved communities and her unexpected detour into electric vehicles from nonprofits and banking. We started with her childhood in South Central Los Angeles, where she learned about entrepreneurship at an early age. So you grew up in South Central Los Angeles with parents who immigrated from the Afro-Caribbean communities of Belize and Central America. You are the oldest of four kids. You're the only girl. Um, And I know you described yourself as being a timid kid, but your parents encouraged you to take on activities that would make you more independent. Um, So tell me more about your childhood and how it shaped you. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, my parents being from, they were both from Belize and my dad actually came here when he was four. And he um, started his own company when he was about 22, um, a computer networking company before the cloud existed. Uh, There was things called server rooms and they were actually in people's offices. (laughs) (laughs) So my dad used to uh, essentially, yeah, essentially, yeah, network computers. And and I, I bring that up because it played such a huge role in how we were brought up is, you know, one of the reasons my dad started that company is because when he was working for another company, he had found out that someone, you know, uh, that was white was making twice as much as he was to do actually less work. And so at 22, my dad just saw the inequities that it, that existed. And for someone that came from another country to come here for a better life, it was very shocking to him. However, he did see that there was a tremendous opportunity to really build a solid business and a family. And so growing up, you know, with his company um, and starting that, it was, it, he really instilled in us to be leaders and and to be team players and to really believe that there isn't anything that we can't do. And then on the other end of that, my mother, she moved to the U.S. for my dad <laughs> to marry him. And um, she said when she was in police, she literally thought the streets were paved with gold here in the U.S., <laughs> like literally. So when she came here, she was just like, oh, like this, this is not a thing. <laughs> and your dad was like, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what it's like. <laughs> right, right. Come yeah, on. yeah, come, come, come. <laughs> but for her, you know, she was an educator and um, my mom worked at the schools and volunteered at the schools and also helped out my dad a lot. But she, my mom really taught us to be caring individuals. Like, and I... Yeah, and I just think those two things, just with the upbringing for kids in South Central LA, you know, these are stories that aren't told, but we they, they exist. You know, we were in a two-parent household with folks that worked really hard and really um, believed that their children could achieve anything. Um, and they did everything to ensure that, you know, understood and also believed that foundation. What did you learn about entrepreneurship from your dad? Were you like, yeah, I want to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I learned that it was really hard. And that was the thing that I did not want to be. (laughs) (laughs) How come? Um, With entrepreneurship, it's like when things are good, they're really, really good. However, when they're bad, they can be terrible. And especially, I definitely feel tremendously privileged today because, you know, we work with a lot of incubators and accelerators. 
and there's a huge focus right now on on helping you know businesses in general. However, when my dad started his company, this was in the 70s. These types of support systems didn't exist, and so my dad really had to figure out so many things on his own. And I guess seeing that and seeing the struggle in it, while I thought it was admirable what he was doing, I just thought that there was probably an easier path to go. Like I don't know, working at a big corporation. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> where they already had everything figured out. <laughs> totally. So I know you went to Azusa Pacific University, a Christian college outside of LA. And at Azusa, you studied organizational leadership because uh, you said you thrive in chaos and like to create stability. Where do you think that motivation came from? You know, towards the end of our childhood, my parents did separate. And I think that that was a very chaotic experience. And I was always the person of trying to figure out how do we put these, how do we put building blocks together? Like, how do we communicate? Uh, like, how do we figure out, like, you know, when my dad is going to pick us up, when my mom's going to pick us up? Like, I was just the person that's like at 13 figuring these things out for my parents because, you know, they were, you know, they were pretty devastated when they, when they split. And so I was the oldest and just felt like this natural drive to try to just make things stable because so much of my life up until that point was stable. And so I think maybe that that's probably where it came from. It's like we had a very, very stable childhood until my parents split. And then it became to me very chaotic. And, you know, 13, you're kind of coming of age as well and figure out who you are. Um, and so it was like this shift. And so I always really wanted to figure out how do you just bring stability to stuff? Because that's usually where I thrive the mm-hmm. most. Mm-hmm. So after school, you worked for a college access program in Camden, New Jersey, giving people with limited resources the skills to access higher education. Camden, as you noted, is one of the poorest cities in the country. What was that experience like? It was very eye-opening to me um, for two reasons. The first reason was that while it was at that time, I don't know if this city is still ranked that now, but at that time, it was the poorest, most dangerous city. And we had seen that there had been there had been so many nonprofits and so many churches and all of this outside help, you know, air quotes, right? However, nothing had really changed for the folks of, of the community. And even when you looked at who was running these things, it wasn't people from the community. However, when you spoke to the youth of the community and the people of the community, community, it's, they wanted to figure out how do they help their community, right? Like they didn't want to live in the situation that they were living in, but they didn't have the tools. And it was just interesting to see a city that had been so inundated with nonprofits and outside help, but like nobody was teaching framework or tools for folks to help themselves, which to me, that is a level of giving folks dignity, you know, to be able to help themselves. Right. So that was interesting. And then the other part to it, working for a nonprofit, you just see to me, the holes within that model, like so many of the folks that work for the nonprofit weren't paid well. However, they had crazy hours and were expected to do so much. And so it also was this very interesting precedent that we were stating that to do good work meant that you also had to live in poverty. And I couldn't believe that to be true. I couldn't believe that, you know, that the only way you can do good is to be in poverty, that there had to be a different business model, right? And that's really, you know, I ended up transitioning into banking to supplement some income, but that's really where I went out to start searching. I was like, well, let me go with the <laughs> You're money. Like, Thanks, money. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't here. We got to figure it out. Right. Like, let's figure out how we make this happen. So yeah, th- th- it was just very eye-opening to me. And I was like yeah. 21, uh, 2021 at that time. And so it was very, um, 
I think that was another like foundational shift for me that helped, you know, play into why we've built Charger Help the way that we have. Um, I know. So yeah, you, you, as you mentioned, you got into banking, started as a teller within three years, you were running your department and then later moved back to LA from Philadelphia to take a customer support job at a company called EV Connect, which was networking EV chargers. And so why did you move back to LA? And then how did you find your way into the EV industry? Yeah. Um, since I was probably like 11, actually, yeah, when I was 11, my mom was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And so it had been ongoing thing forever. And she had finally had gone in remission, um, actually when I had moved to Philly and then we were going to my brother's graduation where I've been in Philly for almost like six years or so. So she'd been in remission for a while and she just kept being weird. And I was like, mom, what's wrong? Like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And then finally she told me that the cancer had come back. Mm. And I think probably like two days later, I put in my resignation at the bank and I had a, you know, made a big name for myself there in Philly, just with the bank and doing a lot of community work. And I really loved Philadelphia, but it was like, I knew that my mom wasn't being given the level of just like uh, support from the healthcare system that she deserved. And so I knew I had to come home and that's why I came home. And I had been in the home for a little bit and, you know, taking her to doctor's appointments. And then at some point I'm just like, we're both probably like, okay, Camille, like you don't have to be here all day, every day. Like you should probably (laughs) go outside or something. So I was just looking for a job, just like something to, you know, break up the time of being at home. And that's where I discovered EV Connect knew nothing about EV charging or even the environment, which is crazy because, you know, so many of my people in my community, like we have a lot of respiratory diseases um, because of the environment, but just really wasn't ever taught anything um, about that. So yeah, I was just like, oh yeah, I guess I'll go do this real quick. (laughs) (laughs) So that was your first experience at a quote unquote climate tech startup. Uh, You were there for a period of major growth within the company. What was that like? And then what was the EV industry like at the time? Sure. I mean, the, when I first invited my mom to come to lunch with me and she goes upstairs at EV Connect. And at that time, um, you know, it was very few employees that worked there, but most people were engineers. And so they worked for home. And so it was just like me and um, I don't know who else was there. And she like gets in and she's just like, she looks around. She's like, do you work for a real company? <laughs> <laughs> Where are all the people? Uh, but you know, but just in two years and nine months, the company grew tremendously. And I think by the time I left, they had it to be at least with 70 folks and moving into an office next door. And when she finally, when she went there again, she was like, Oh yeah, I guess you were doing something. I don't know what she thought I was doing. <laughs> just hanging out in somebody's random office. She's yeah. Like, this is legit. <laughs> So yeah, you mentioned you left EV Connect after about three years and then later volunteered at the LA Clean Tech Incubator, also known as Lacey, where you wrote curriculum on EV charging station maintenance and then Lacey developed that into a course. Um, but people had trouble finding jobs even after they they took the training course, but then had trouble finding jobs. How did that experience shape the initial idea for Charger Help? What it did for me was really understand that there was a true hole in the industry. Because in my mind, I would just go to the manufacturers and the network providers and I would say like, hey, look, we train people on how to fix stations. I know that we got a lot of down stations, like just hire these people. But what we saw was that for a lot of the manufacturers and network providers, they didn't, like the areas that they were having the most issues were areas where the stations weren't super dense where they didn't have a lot of stations. So it didn't make sense for them to have people 
all over the U.S., even though they needed people. And so that's when I, you know, it really dawned on me that, okay, like there probably needs to be another player. There probably needs to be someone else that can take care of this in a, such a way that's, that's unique uh, to the EV industry. So that was the, the spark of the idea for Charger Health. And then how did you meet your co-founder and chief work officer, Yvette Ellis? And then how did you know that you shared the same vision for what Charger Health could be? Yeah, so Yvette was actually a um, a contracted worker for Lacey, and she was leading their um, workforce development coaching program. So helping folks make sure that their resume was good and that they could interview properly and that they were, you know, um, presenting themselves in the best way in order to get hired. But she had also been working with um, the Job Corps system through the Department of Labor. And so her whole job has always been around placement. So working with the major company to see what type of folks they need and then working with the local community in order to staff those folks. Uh, one of the the guys over at the programs at Lacey, he was like, you got to meet a vet, you know, like she's a powerhouse. Like she's so cool. And like, I love cool people. So I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> um, and so then when I met Yvette, I had just re- kind of started, you know, really thinking about the ideal of Charger Help and actually needed to apply to something that required me to have a co-founder. So I was like, all right, Yvette. I was like, I know you don't really know me, but like, it seems like <laughs> what you're doing is kind of like what I'm going to need help with, you know, <laughs> if you are you interested and just applying to this thing with me. And I was like, listen, like, I'm not going to ask you for nothing. Like, I don't, you know, I quit my job, so I'm doing this full time. Like, I just need you to just apply, be on, you know, so I can use your name, essentially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so at first she was just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> with, mind you, until that point, you know, I had got it. I had put, somebody had written an article about me. And there was a lot of folks that were reaching out to me to be my co-founder. And like, I'm a, I'm a really cool person. Like people usually <laughs> want to do stuff with me because I'm great, you right. know? <laughs> and then when Yvette was just like, no, it just made me want her to be on my team even more. So I was like, okay, what, like, what do we got to do? Yeah. So she was like, I got to talk to my husband. I said, okay, all right, go ahead. And so then finally she came back and she was like, all right, yeah, let's do it. And I tell you, um, we ca- I call them like God moments or alignment moments where it's like, I could not have drafted a job description or done a hiring process to find a vet. Like she is such a fit for Charger Help that it 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 it's a little, it blows my mind oftentimes when it just is so crazy. When people are like, have y'all known each other for a long time? I was like, no, yeah. not that long. But she's been there with the company through everything, you know, and then even for me personally. So it's been, I've just been feel very uh, privileged and, and, and happy. Mm-hmm. So, so you mentioned that Charger Help um, Univet applied to Elemental Accelerator's Startup Accelerator. And around that time, you received about $400,000 in grant funding. And then in March of last year, you raised a $2.75 million seed round. You told me that you don't like asking people for money. So I'm curious what was fundraising like for you? The beginning was painful because I'm an I'm a, a industry expert. Like, I really understand the problem. Like, on mm-hmm. a very weird way, in a you know, and so I'm trying to explain you know what's going on to folks, and so sometimes it would be frustrating because people wouldn't get it, and so I had to really, really work on how do I tell the story, how do I create fans, how do I ensure that folks you know really understand what I'm saying because. You know, the issue of down charging stations to me, it was like, yeah, no, it's not just a business idea to fix it. It's like, to me, this could stop EV adoption. Right. Like people are not going to buy electric vehicles 
if not only if they don't think that there's enough stations and if they think that the stations that are installed don't work, yeah. like, yeah. And to me, it's irresponsible for us to invest billions of dollars. People are becoming millionaires off of this industry and that they can install stuff that doesn't, that people don't take care of. So I'm very, I have a lot of conviction and that doesn't always transfer well for if you're trying to pitch and get people (laughs) to be (laughs) on your side. It might just come off too rough. Um, So I just had to learn, you know, how to storytell how to create, you know, really good supporters and really understand what is the business opportunity. And then also balance that with my conviction because, you know, that is the thing that keeps me going. Coming up, Charger Help attracts lots of investor attention and Camille turns away potential backers. First, a word about our exclusive partner supporting this show. What It Takes is brought to you by BakerBots, the global law firm trusted by clean energy and climate tech leaders. At the top of the show, you heard from Travis Wofford, a partner at BakerBots. Basically, I help people build, buy, and sell companies. So if you're looking to raise money to build a product or take it to the next level, or if you've built up a company and are looking for an exit or looking for a way to take it public, you call my team and uh, we help you out. Behind Travis, it's a wall of thick books. These are deals. So these are kind of top of the fold Wall Street Journal things that you can be really proud of. And that's just what's in this room. This is fun stuff. Those deals include IPOs, acquisitions, and private equity investments for some of the most influential clean energy companies and founders. Closing those deals means bringing more innovative, clean technologies to market faster. And that's what motivates Travis. These are entrepreneurs that really believe in the environment, that really believe in energy independence, either for the consumer or on a more national level. And it's really great seeing those ideas bear fruit. BakerBots knows energy, they know technology, and they know the needs of entrepreneurs pushing the boundaries of both. To scale your clean energy business faster, reach out to lawyers like Travis. Visit BakerBots.com. Not only did you have conviction in yourself, but your investors or potential investors had conviction in you, so much so that you had a millions of dollars from investors that you turned away. Why did you do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had like these breakup calls with funds because, you know, with, you know, raising capital, like you develop really good relationships, you know, with the investors over time. And this had been some of the folks we've known for a year. So they've seen the growth. And so when we decided on how much money we wanted to raise, and then we realized that uh, the investors that we did want to be a part of the cap table because of the opportunity for growth, you know, for the company, they, you know, required to take up a lot of that round. And so it was very difficult because a lot of the folks that we had chatted with understood what we were doing, really believed in us. And we, and I'm thankful I have an advisor. His name is John Siegler. He's out of Lacey. And I had to sit with him and we went one by one to say, okay, what is the true value out of this investor? Like, of course, Camille, like you like the investor, fine. But like, <laughs> what is the value add for where we want to go with our goals with the company? And do you think this person or this organization will be able to do that? So definitely feel very privileged to have the opportunity to turn away funds, but it was also equally hard because, you know, then we had to take a bet on some of these funds. Like I had to trust what they were saying and hope that they could deliver and that it actually wasn't the other people that we turned away. Um, but I'm happy to say that my, um, 
the funds that we have on the cap table have gone above and beyond. And it's a testament to where Charger Help is today. It's really because of, you know, the ways in which that they've supported us. So you describe Charger Help not just as a maintenance solution for EV charging, but a technology service provider. Um, tell me more about Charger Help's technology. What does it consist of? How did you build it? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we talk about often is that, right, these charging stations, like I said earlier, they're sophisticated um, sophisticated software. And specifically with what we call OCPP charging stations, so open charge point charging stations, which... To me, it's everything else besides Tesla, where it's not fully integrated, right? So there's certain handshakes that has to happen. There's certain um, interpretations of standards that needs to be very clear, that has to consistently be clear. However, when you have a lot of folks, you know, we say a lot of chefs in the kitchen, you get a lot of discrepancies. And many times you can't really figure it out unless you are bringing that data in and you're able to look at it at a mass and aggregated, you know, way. So at Charger Hub, what we do is we receive tickets in real time to dispatch. And when we receive that ticket, we receive the error code. And so we ground all of the workflows that we do in that error code. And then we document, okay, these are the steps that maybe the manufacturer told me to take. Did it work or didn't it work, right? How long did it take? Did the part actually fix the issue? And the cool thing about this is that we be, are able to then give the industry a lot of important information as we switch to a new fueling source. Like, what is the true cost of operations and maintenance, right? Are there bad players in regards to um, manufacture? Are there parts that consistently go down? Are there issues that should be covered underneath warranty that hasn't been covered underneath warranty? And so for us, we say that we are a technology-enabled solutions provider because more than anything, it's one thing to fix the station, but if you don't know how you fix the station or how that can help not have the station break, then you really aren't adding too much value to the industry. But if now I can tell you that information is such a way that you get it, you understand it, and we're all better for it, to me, that is a true value add. You talked about your customers earlier, those that are benefiting from this technology. How do you all make money? What's the business model for Charger Help? Sure. So we have um, three pricing models today. With manufacturers, we do an ad hoc. So we follow a lot of what they were doing with electricians, which is just an hourly rate. And then we also have um, what we call uh, uh, dedicated technicians, where you have folks that may need to not experience any downtime, right? And so you think about mission-critical businesses, you think about school buses or fleet operators um, or even utilities, right? And so we say, okay, we can guarantee an immediate dispatch with parts on hand to fix the station within the day, which is quite different than what the industry is seeing, right? Where some stations can be down for months, and then the other model, which we hope that, to me, it makes the most sense for the industry is to do kind of like what we call a charger help as a service. So just have a monthly fee that a site host can pay that takes care of all the labor that they may need on the charging stations and just, um, you know, preventative maintenance, cleaning the station, making sure the environment is well taken care of. With gas stations, you have attendants that do this, right? However, when we decentralize fuel, we have to figure out, okay, how do we want to take care of this infrastructure and ensure that people continue to adopt EV cars? I know social equity is something that has been part of your life and career uh, forever. Um, how do you integrate equity goals into the decisions that you make as a company? And, and how will you fulfill your mission as you continue to grow? Yeah, for us, we what we did first is we looked at what is good business, 
right? Okay, a, a company is is profitable. Um, it can hold on to employees. People want to work there, and you're doing well for the community that you're in. And I think starting there um, for me was so important because for us, all of that points to the things when we talk about like equity and just doing right. And so to us, it's like, oh, these aren't nice to have features. This is what makes a good company. Because if you pay people poorly now, you're impacted by the great resignation, right? People always ask us like, oh, was it hard for you to find technicians because of great resignation? I had 20 spots. I had 1,600 people apply. What? Why? 20 positions, 1,600 people apply. 1,600 people. Wow. Why? Because we thought about the frontline job. It's not just like, oh, you just go out and you clean a station. No, I want you to feel like you have dignity when you come and work for us, right? That you feel connected to the problem that you're solving, that you understand how important you are. These are things that every single person wants to feel. And we built a job around that. And then we said, okay, how much money do I need to pay a person like that in order to ensure that they're not getting a second job? I want my technicians that this is the only thing that they do. So that way I can rely on them to take care of my customers. And so we ensured that, you know, all of our technicians make $30 an hour. We believe that that is a livable wage, that you won't feel inclined to have to do additional work. You don't have to worry about your bills shutting off. Why would I want my employee to be worried about bills? I want them to be worried about the work. (laughs) For sure. For sure. (laughs) So for us, yeah, that's what we thought, you know, we thought about. And then that now translates into, you know, hiring locally. It makes sense for us to hire locally because our competitors fly people across the state in order to fix stations. That doesn't make sense to me. It's weird. We're in climate tech. Why are you flying people to fix a charging station? You just undid all the greenhouse gas emissions. Like you just undid it. Like, what are you doing? Um, That's why we hire locally, right? And then that's why we pay people well because retention, field services, positions, they have very, very uh, low retention, it has high turnover because they're usually worked to the ground and not paid well. So we we just did all these things because this is good business. We want to be a profitable company and ensure that our employees do not leave, that we hold on to them, and that we're good to our community. Um, and so, yeah. So Camille, I'm curious, all of this wisdom, like how did you know how to start a company? How did you know how to run it? And if you didn't know, then how did you figure it out? One of the things I I did know, right? I I knew how to um to build a team. Like I'm very aware of the stuff that I don't know how to do. Like probably too aware of it. <laughs> I know a lot of what I'm not good at. <laughs> so um I really started to try to find people that was good at the stuff I wasn't good at. And I'm I'm really good at building teams. And so that was the first part. And then once I got that part out of the way. It was then looking at, okay, how do you not, I guess, yeah, like how how do I then identify kind of like the other components of the stuff that I don't even know that I'm not good at or that I should know, right? And so then that's when we looked at incubators and accelerators. So we were in grid 110 first, and that's when Mickey Reynolds, who is, I feel, a godsend to Los Angeles in the U.S., um, helping all these startups <laughs> create good product. And so we worked a lot on our product um, with grid 110 and really understanding who our customer was, what type of technology we needed to create. Um, and then we went into Lacey's Incubator. And with Lacey's Incubator, that's where we, you know, developed a stronger relationship with John Siegler, who was our advisor there. And they really helped us, well, specifically John, 
really helped us scope out what a race could look like. What do investors want to see? What do we need to ensure exists in order to be invested in? And then the last thing we finally got into was Elemental's Accelerator. And for me, Elemental really exposed us to a lot of companies that we eventually ended up having partnerships with. And that was very helpful. So we, I think with those three organizations, along with a solid team, was really how we were able to put together Charger Hope. Um, but it all started with, you know, finding the right people that were ready to do the work. Curious, what were the hardest moments so far? And were there any moments where you thought, we're closing the doors, this isn't working, it's over? Yeah. I mean, the hardest moment was definitely, my mom passed in June of last year and we were in the middle of fundraising or like wrapping up fundraising. And it's so, it's so interesting because, you know, I, I feel like there's been this swift to really focus on like work-life balance. And I've, you know, struggled with it often because as a, as a CEO um, and a founder, but to me, even more so as a CEO, it's like, I'm resp- I got 35 people that rely on a Charger Hill paycheck. You know, and and I have thirty people that 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 rely on this company existing, and that I make smart decisions. And so sometimes that requires me to have to work more often. And then when my mom, you know, passed, this was during the time period of like with her funeral. I think the part that was hard was just trying to figure out, you know, the balance of making sure that I was present, but that also that I was able to take, you know, get work done. You don't want to burn out. Like that's the other thing. You might think you have like all the <laughs> energy in the world, and in a moment, you're like, "Oh wow, that was hard." Mm-hmm. So that was that. And then in regards to us, you know, closing down or anything like that, we've been just so privileged to have so much momentum. Um, just since you know July of actually officially having the technicians out in the field to today, you know, we went from maybe having like 500 stations and one, you know, in LA. To now being in 11 states, you know, with 20,000 charging stations and expanding, you know, every single day um, and then having, you know, regulation follow up with that. Right. Like it's it's crazy. And I don't take it for, you know, for granted, because I know that that's not a situation for everyone. We're just on this crazy like roller coaster right now. And I'm just like, OK, enjoy the ride and be present. <laughs> That's a really impressive stat. So 20,000 chargers under management, 11 states. Do you have a sense of when you'll be national, like coverage nationwide? Yeah, we are um, we should be national by the end of this year. Because the thing is, we do get national contracts. However, we only step into states that we believe we can have full-time workers in. Um, however, we've been you know looking at different um, employment models. So that way we can you know, take advantage of, our, of the national contracts that we have. And remind me, you are a seed stage company, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are. A seed, yeah, we closed the seed round. Yeah. I think the traction is important to note because oftentimes you'll hear corporates, utilities say, oh, no, we, we don't want to pilot with, you know, seed stage companies or even Series A companies. We need proven tech. Mm-hmm. And this is a great example of like, the tech is proven. Right. <laughs> you know, sure, you're going to keep iterating and improving, but the metrics speak for themselves. Absolutely. Um, what lesson would you say has taken you the longest to learn? I think a lot of it, my biggest lesson, you know, we do a lot of lobbying. We're always um, trying to ensure that folks really think about the operations and maintenance component because it didn't exist before. And so I think being in those spaces, it's always hard for me to understand like how things work. Like, and even with fundraising, like it's a lot of like 
backdoor conversations. Like people are very like smiling in your face and then like maybe have comments that they'll tell someone else. And like, you know, growing up in a community I grew up in, like we're just very like, you're going to know if I'm not feeling you or not. Like it's just like, like it's just like, it's very odd and open. And so I think that's something that I'm always surprised I'm like, oh, they felt that way? Why did they just say that? You know? <laughs> You're just like, oh, okay. Um, that, I don't know if I'll ever learn it. And I, and I, you know, and I don't ever think I want to be like that. Like, I'd rather just have, like, a very honest and open conversation of where I stand and where we're at and what my questions are. It's just, it's easier to navigate than to be in this space of, like, smoke and mirrors. I'm just like, eventually, you want to work with authentic people, you know? And you want to work with people that you can trust. Yeah, well said. I'm curious what your experience has been like as a founder and CEO who's also black and a woman in an industry that is overly represented by people who are white as male, you know, both starting the company, fundraising, like wherever, I don't know, you have felt those demographics have been present in your experience, if at all. I mean, most of my work in life has been in spaces where I've been the minority. So I guess it's not really any different. Um, I think that the one thing that has been really cool is that I do own a company and I'm the CEO. So people just can't talk to me any way that they want to, <laughs> which I have, have, have been, you know, in the past. And even like, sometimes that people don't know, it's, it's been funny. Like I've been, at, um, I'll, my, um, head of government relations, um, is, is not black and like, we'll go out to like these policy stuff and people will talk to her. Like she's the CEO and like completely <laughs> ignore me. And so stuff like that, you're just like, oh man, like this is weird. But then they, they tell, you know, she tells them and then they change their, 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 their mood. But it's interesting. I don't think sometimes people, they don't even know themselves. But I think that's the biggest thing that's been cool. It's like, no, like, actually, you have to really respect me because I'm doing a thing. And my work speaks for itself, right? Whether for a black female founder or a black person or a white male, like, the growth of my company is, is definitely something it's definitely something, you know what I mean? That, that people have to like honor and respect that like, yeah, you know, we built this thing and we look a little different, but like, it's pretty cool. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. What advice would you give to other underrepresented founders, um, especially black people, black women who are fundraising or thinking about starting a company in the climate tech space? I think it's just stuff that we grew up with, you know, you got to be work twice as hard and really just like show your, you know, your put your best foot forward. It's just kind of is that's just kind of is what it is. I think that more than anything, um, it's also to to find community because sometimes you have experiences and like you think that they're. You know, like you think like, oh, maybe it wasn't that. But sometimes just talking to somebody and having somebody validate you just helps you have a little bit of a sanity check. So I think like finding community, making sure that you just you you just are super tight, that there's no reason that they could say no. Cause then that's when you find out, oh no, it's their character and not your business. And and find community and find people that you can like talk to um when there are times that are a little bit harder than others. You told me um about where your dad grew up in Belize before he came here at four and and the proposed rare earth mineral extraction in the place that he grew up. Can you tell me that story and how it how how it impacts your leadership? I was in a class recently and we were talking about sustainability and energy and I had brought up my family had reached out to me to write a letter to the government. My dad is from um, Belize and he's his um, he's from Maroon Village. And we, we don't know what Maroon Village is. Maroon Village is where, where um, slaves that were brought to a certain country, they escaped. So they actually never experienced slavery. I mean, they usually went into these remote areas. And so there's a few all over the world. And Gell's Point 
It's actually one of um, the only surviving Maroon villages in Belize that is still thriving today. And so anyways, my family reached out to me because they're like, yeah, like this organization wants to come in and mine for, for I believe it was lithium um, in the area and that it would impact them in a negative way. And I have seen a Vice um, video where this same company had did this in Jamaica near a Maroon village and it had impacted the folks in the community heavily. And so I do research and then I find out the company, they make electric vehicle batteries, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's why I brought this up in the class and the guy was like, yeah, no energy is without impact. And like, really, you know, what we need to move towards is conservation. Um, and it's less of creating new, 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 new. But what it did, you know, for my leadership or just understanding my leadership is also just understanding my platform and like also pushing me to continue to develop my platform. To say that, like, yes, you know, EVs are going to solve this one thing. However, there's so much more opportunity to start figuring out how we can just be better stewards of the earth. Here's the thing. The earth will continue to exist. Whether we (laughs) will exist on the earth Mm -hmm. is the real question. So it just pushes me to really start... um, talking about these things in a, a little bit more critically. It also pushed me to sign up for the class that I'm taking at UAT to start really starting to understand more things outside of EV charging and really get a better perspective of this entire problem so you don't get blindsided and single-viewed. You know, So I hope that we're understanding that this, these problems are complex and there is no silver bullet to any of this, right? And that we have to be in constant, just being constantly critical of the solutions that we're having. Looking ahead, where will you and Charger help be in five years? And what do you think the EV charging market will look like? Where we see ourselves is really being a technology-enabled service provider for smart IoT assets that are publicly deployed. EV charging stations are the first of its kind, right, that is so software-enabled. When we look towards the future, we know that we're going to have smart cities and that we're going to need interconnected devices and that there will need to be a service provider that understands the complexity of that software and that can aggregate such a data in order to improve on the software. So I really see Charger Hub stepping into that space to serve as not only a model, but also the standard of what that could look like when you employ people locally, when you utilize technology, when you have good business practices. Um, And so, yeah, that's what we're excited to see. All right. I want to move into my other favorite part of the interview, which is our high voltage round. So these are really quick questions, really quick answers, quick, like 10 seconds, starting with Camille, if you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? Oh, a lioness, because they're fierce. (laughs) Mm, I like it. What inspires you? My dad. Mm. Um, If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? A librarian. (laughs) As I look at all (laughs) my books, I'll just read all day. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Oh, my mother. Mm. What is the best investment you've ever made? A leadership coach. Mm-hmm. When are you your best self? Early in the morning. <laughs> mm, me too. I'm also yeah. a morning person. Not quite 6 a.m. breakfast, but <laughs> I know you mentioned that earlier. Um, what is your best trait? I think that I, I, that I, I just really, really want to be like a good person and a good leader. Like I really do. Like I, that's, that's my, yeah. 
I honestly yeah. really want to be. Yeah. What is your worst trait? I move too fast. Um, if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? That we could be more understanding of one another. If there was just one or two people who were going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Oh, I would love for my mom and my dad. <laughs> uh, what is the hardest kind of help to ask for? I think when I'm doing things last minute and then I need to ask for help and I know that this person is <laughs> needs more time, it's, yeah, it's pretty, I feel pretty bad about it. I hear that. Uh, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... I was say, I was, yeah, the first thing that came to mind was like, they don't try hard enough. The next next question to finish is, if you really knew me, you would know. That I have a huge desire to have a big impact on the world. Success is? It's living. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have? Oh, hugged my mom more. <laughs> if the world knew me, for one thing, it would be? That I'm always going to try to do my best. I'm most proud of. Charge your help. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is? Listening. Camille, I have loved this interview so much. Getting to know you and what you've built and what you and I believe it can become is really inspiring. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing who you are. Thank you for having me. Camille Terry is the co-founder and CEO of Charger Help. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank our exclusive What It Takes sponsor, BakerBots. To scale your clean energy business faster, reach out to their global team of lawyers. Visit BakerBots.com. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading global corporations to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in clean energy, mobility, and climate. Powerhouse Ventures backs founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. And we are hiring. Powerhouse is hiring a head of business development and an associate, and Powerhouse Ventures is hiring a partner or a principal. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund forward slash careers. That's powerhouse.fund forward slash careers. Follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. If you enjoyed this show, there's a few ways you can help us out. You can give the show a rating or review on Apple or Spotify, or send the episode to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy it. Our favorite recent review is from Troy J.H., who called what it takes a welcoming space for founders to really open up about their motivations, challenges, and hopes for their company, and said, I always walk away with a deeper tapestry of knowledge on how companies get built and the lives of entrepreneurs with a deep passion. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abawaji, Rye Story Fisher, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>